Well, we are here today because we, uh, we do need. Um, we are people in need, um, desperate for hope um, and for someone to rescue us. And we're, we're grateful because we come uh, to a place where we know there is hope, where God has extended his mercy to us. Let me, let me pray for us, um, and we'll jump into Matthew for this morning. God, we are so grateful um, that even though we are in desperate need, not one of us is good enough, not one of us um, always does what we should. God, that you are here with us, that you call us to yourself and you offer us forgiveness and grace. And so God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning and this uh, incredible story, these incredible words that you, Jesus, have spoken to us. God, I pray that we would see ourselves in the story and that we would be both convicted and challenged as well as uh, comforted and given hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who do we exist for? I mean, who, who belongs, like, in, in church? Like, who, who in your mind, like, if you were to kind of make a list here, who in your mind would be, uh, like, the most likely candidates for following Jesus? And, you know, who, eh, maybe not so much, right? Hold that thought. Imagine now, for, for a second, we'll get, we'll get back there in a second, but imagine for a moment a world uh, in which ISIS owns America. Let's just imagine, okay? Now listen, I'm not like, I'm not fear-mongering here, okay? I'm not announcing my candidacy for president, all right? Um, although, let's be honest, you could do worse, okay? Um, <laughs> a lot worse, I think. Um, but just, just, we'll get there in a second. It all makes sense. But just imagine for a second a, a world in which ISIS owns America. So maybe like the ISIS American states. It's got a great ring to it, right? Uh, and so we lost, they won, uh, and we are oppressed, abused, right? Subject to their laws and, you know, governmental occupation and, and all of those really, really terrible things. And at any, any moment sort of that we would try to rebel against them or, or fight back, we're, we're quickly squelched and, and even killed. I mean, slaves are, are pretty easy easy to kill, and it happens, it happens often. So just, just imagine. And then add, add to that scenario, you know, maybe the occupation has happened for a while now, and you've got this neighbor, an old friend, um, an American-born citizen, no less, who, st who starts to sympathize with ISIS. I mean, more, more than that, actually, seize an opportunity. I mean, if you can't beat them, join them, right? And, and so this, this totalitarian government, it's expensive, okay? And it's time to start extracting revenues from the citizenship, taxes. And so your ex-friend signs up for the job and begins going door to door, forcibly collecting money for ISIS. And we're talking a lot of money here, right? Your money spent to enslave you. Kind of makes you miss the good old IRS, right? And this, this means that you, you can now barely make ends meet as a result. Uh, your kids are hungry, like literally hungry, and, and you feel that. And there's not, a, there's not a single thing that you can do about it. And meanwhile, your, your friend is making a killing over it. 
I mean, stinking rich in this. I mean, it's like, because they have this deal worked out where if he collects 20 grand from you, he gets to keep five. So now, now he's like driving a Bentley. He's living in the nicest house in, in Olathe. He's got everything possible, working for the enemy, living off of your suffering. How do you feel about this guy? Like maybe hell's not quite hot enough, Right? That if there is like such a thing as sin, this has got to be like right at the top of the list about as, as bad as it, as it possibly gets. I mean, this low down, bottom dwelling. I mean, it's like you almost have to start using expletives just to describe this guy, right? Are you, are you with me? So you remember this guy, Matthew? You've been studying his, his writings for, for quite some time. He was a, a close friend of Jesus, an eyewitness of these events. Remember Matthew? That was his job until he started following Jesus. Like, seriously, right? He was an Israelite, like living in Roman-occupied Israel where his own countrymen are abused and oppressed, killed at any whim. And he collected taxes meant to enslave his own people. And he got rich doing it. I mean, he had everything he could possibly ever want in that culture. That's, that's Matthew. And, and Jesus is about to, to tell us and show us that's who I came for. People like that. That's, that's who I want to spend my time with. That's who church is for. That's who's most likely to follow me. You see, one of the most regular accusations hurled against Jesus while he lived on this earth was that he just spent way too much time with the party crowd. Tax collectors, prostitutes, and any sort of big, sort of flashy center that you could think of. That was, that was his crowd, which, I mean, if you think about it, is really great news for tax collectors, prostitutes, and other classically trained sinners, right? But for the rest of us, decent people who have most of their, their lives together who aren't that bad, right? Who can certainly compare themselves to others and feel pretty, pretty good about themselves. People like us, that's another story. Because you see, only sinners become followers. Only those who know how desperate, broken, needy, and sinful they are. Not those who have all their junk together. Only sinners become followers. We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew now for quite some time. We're in Matthew chapter 9. If you are interested in turning there to follow along in this, this story... Um, but yes, Matthew's writing, yes, we've been studying the, the, the writings of this former traitor. And, and today we, we come to what must have been one of the most exciting parts for Matthew to write. I mean, I can only imagine, right? Um, this, is, this is the part where Matthew writes himself into the story. And he tells the readers, that's us, about his own conversion experience, about how Jesus called him and how he began to follow. Even Matthew, this tax collector, this ugly sinner, a follower of Jesus, because only sinners become followers. And we're, we're going to see three reasons for this as we go. 
First, sinners, sinners who become followers know how sick they are. Second, sinners who become followers know that everything needs to change. And third, sinners who become followers know how to celebrate. They know how sick they are. They know everything needs to change, and they know, honestly, they know how to party. Okay, so let's, let's get into the story here. Imagine, imagine Matthew for a second. He's sitting at his tax booth, you know, doing his, doing his thing, exploiting his neighbors, essentially, collecting money for the Romans. I mean, think about like the dirty looks he gets sitting there as people walk by, or worse, right? The things that people would yell out. But I mean, by this point, he's probably gotten a little bit used to it. He knows, he's just used to everybody hating him. That's fine, right? He's, he's rich, he's powerful. People's respect and admiration he can probably do without at this point. And then this rabbi walks by. It's a rabbi that he's been kind of casually watching, keeping his eye on uh, for maybe a few months. He's heard this rabbi preach some sermons. Uh, He's even seen the rabbi do a few miracles. He heard him actually forgive some guy's sins recently. I mean, who has the, the power to be able to forgive sins? And as all the the crowds around him sneer at him, this rabbi walks over to this bottom-dwelling Benedict Arnold. And Jesus says two words to Matthew he never thought he'd ever hear from any respectable person ever. Jesus says, follow me. I mean, I can only imagine, like, this sort of dumb look on his face, like, I mean, surely this guy means somebody else, right? And yet, it doesn't look like Matthew, like, asks for a clarifying question. He's like, this is my chance, right? He gets up immediately. He leaves everything behind. And he follows Jesus. I'd love to know the conversation that followed, right? Of what happened, what Matthew said, or, or frankly didn't say. Maybe he was too stunned to even speak. We don't know what what the conversation was, but we do know that later on that night, Matthew has this big party over at his house. And Jesus and his disciples are there. Which, I mean, isn't just like taboo for them to go over to this guy's house and socialize with with his friends, right? This is, this is suicide. This is absolute disaster. This is you going over to the ISIS sympathizer's house, right? And having a good party together. And I, I mean, I imagine the disciples walking in, they've only been following Jesus for a short time. thinking, like, are we, like they're about to go in. The, are we really doing this, right? Knowing that, like, that you, don't, you don't turn back from this moment. And in walks Jesus and his disciples. And Matthew's mansion is filled with all the terrible people. I mean, it makes sense, right? The only friends a tax collector can have are other tax collectors, other rejects, other, other discarded members of society. There's, there's nobody left for him to be friends with. They're all right here and they're watching. So what's Jesus going to do? I mean, almost, you gotta imagine, like, I'm sure the disciples thought, I mean, this is it, right? He's, just Jesus needs to see who's here, and we're, we're out of here. We can go and, you know, have something a little bit safer and cleaner someplace else, right? And not have to be with those people anymore. But Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't just say, stay. He actually sits down and reclines at dinner with them. 
And in that culture, I mean, to, to share a meal with somebody, that's not just sort of a casual happening. That's, it's, it's intimacy. It's, it's friendship. And so, of, of course, later on, the Pharisees, okay, so if you're newer to this story, the Pharisees are the religious do-gooders, right? Uh, they're kind of the perfect crowd. At least they think they are. They pretend to be. They're, they're the rule keepers. I mean, they, they've got their, their lives together. And so, of course, the Pharisees, they go to the Jesus' disciples, they kind of corner, corner them and they say, has your rabbi lost his mind eating with those people? And Jesus overhears the question, the accusation, and he explains to the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, those who think they're righteous, but sinners. Because only sinners become followers. It's because, first of all, they... They know that they're sick. Sinners who become followers know that they're sick. That's what Jesus is getting at with this, this metaphor, right? And Jesus uses a lot of metaphors in this passage, in the, one, the verses that follow. But think of it this way. People, this is what Jesus is getting at. People who know they are sick, go to the doctor. They, they try some remedies. They get a little bit more sleep. They pursue medicine. They, they try to do something, anything to stop the disease, Right? But the sickest people are those who are sick but don't have any idea that they're sick. The ones who inwardly are dying but on the outside everything looks just fine because they're, they're not going to the doctor. They're not looking for anybody's help. And similarly, decent people, good people, people who cross all their T's and dot all their I's, who, who can hide all their sins or at least ignore them for a little while, they're liked, they're respected, they're successful. I mean, look around, right? People like a lot of us, people like me. I mean, why would we need a doctor? I mean, just look at us, right? We look great. We, I mean, many of us, at least, again, on the outside, we look, everything is just fine. We've got our lives together, right? Or at least better than most people. But meanwhile, sinners, I mean, tax collectors know they're traitors, not under some delusion that they're serving the greater good, right? They know what they're doing. Prostitutes know. They understand how desperate they are. Sinners. Get it, and maybe, just maybe, they might actually, maybe, see if Jesus can do something about it. So the first question we have to ask ourselves, that I have to wrestle with, is do I, do I know how sick I am? Do I really understand how, how diseased my heart can be? And listen, I know that's a, that's a hard question sitting in church, but let me just say, apart from Christ, there are no healthy people in this room. None. Apart from him, all of us are dying. 
And we, we have a disease within us that is terminal and unforgiving. But not all of us know it. A lot of us think we're just, we're, we're fine, good enough, living our lives, everything, you know, it's just, we're just happily oblivious, aren't we? And so why would we go see a doctor? Now, of course, right, Jesus isn't saying sin is good, right? Go out and send some more so you know how much you need him. Or, I mean, of course, he's not saying that. Um, but he, he is saying that at least sinners know that they need something. They, they, and if you know it, there, there's still a chance for you. But if you think you're healthy, and for example, you might, you might think you're healthy if you easily downplay the sins in your life. You know, they're not that bad. It's like, fine, everybody does those things. It doesn't matter. Or, or like you overplay how good your good works are because you're that awesome, right? Because you did like one thing once for somebody, right? Or we do, we do that, don't we? Or, or you, might, you might think you're healthy if you easily look down on others. I'm sure none of us do that, right? But, um, you know, you think or you say things like, how could they? I'd never... Like, how can they live like that? Like all those sort of judgmental, arrogant statements because we're so much better. Or, or, or with this, maybe, maybe you just think of certain individuals or kinds of people that you'd really be annoyed to see in heaven. I mean, you'd just be like ticked if you like ran into them. Um, you might think you're healthy uh, if you prefer the religious show. Yeah, going to church and singing the songs, saying the right words, if you prefer those things over actually obeying what Jesus says. I think that's really what he's getting at with that whole mercy over sacrifice bit. We like the show of being good without actually being good, right? You might, you might think you're healthy if you believe that church exists essentially for people like you, decent people. You're the, you're the one who belongs and those people, whoever, whoever they are in your life, there's no way they would fit here. It's not for people like that. And so imagine for a second a hospital. All the doctors and nurses and practitioners, all the equipment and medicines and everything there. Imagine a hospital that refuses to help sick people. That exists only for the sake of of those who, who work there, right, a part of, their, part of their group. I mean, the only thing more useless would be a church that exists only for its members. And we're not gonna be that church. And, I, and I've, I've gotta say, I, last, last Sunday, you guys blew me away, those of you who are here. Um, I was so proud of our church, of, our, of, of you. Um, last week. I mean, you know, it's Easter, right? It's kind of a big deal, right? I don't know if you know that, but it sort of is. Um, and I mean, it was, it was kind of a crazy Sunday. We had, we had record numbers. We had 927 people here in this little building throughout our, four services. It was snowing, right? So it was, I mean, it's just completely crazy, but it was, it was so much fun. We had 175 volunteers last week, 175. And even, even though it was the craziest Sunday we've ever had, there was always parking available out front, for guests, for new people, because you chose, so many of you chose to walk in the snow to get here, parking farther away. 
Many of you came at 8 and 11.45. Who wants to go to church at 8 or 11.45? But there's plenty of room at the the more popular services. It's because you you know that there's hope here. That, That Jesus came not for the healthy but for the sick. So many of you invited friends, you served them, you you made room for them, you showed them as much love as you possibly could. Because for many of us, we, we know, many of us do, right? We know that we're sick. We know that we're desperate. We know, we know how, how terrible our need is. But we also know that we graciously, with all humility, that we, we've gotten a glimpse of the cure. And we want, we want others to experience the same. And I was, I was so proud of our church. Thanks for being awesome. I mean that. that it, was, it was really fun. I'm still tired from it, but it was really fun. Only sinners become followers. It's because they know that they're sick. And second, second, they also know that as a result, everything needs to change. Like not a few things, not just like a little, little tweaks here and there, right? They're not just looking for, for a Band-Aid or, or Tylenol, right? They know that they're too sick for that. And people, people like Matthew, they, they know they don't just need a few good tweaks, a few, a few more morals to live by, maybe just a little bit of inspiration to get them through the week, right? They, they know that none of that's going to be enough. People like Matthew, sick people, dying people, sinners, know they need a brand new start, a new life, a new heart. And this, this comes out in the next section here. So as, as Matthew continues sort of telling this, this story, um, he gives us a different conversation, like right after the kind of the, the one with the, the Pharisees. Um, but they're, they're clearly related. Okay, and so we just, we just walked through the, the Pharisees asking Jesus' disciples, you know, um, why does Jesus party so much, basically? And so now John the Baptist's disciples ask Jesus, why don't your disciples fast more? Like, why aren't they more serious? Don't, don't they know how bad things are, basically? And Jesus answers that question with three metaphors. Um, but let's skip to the last two here, verse, verse 16. So Jesus says, in answer to this question, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. And people say the Bible is hard to understand, right? Um, I mean, what, what is Jesus talking about there? Well, it's, it's two metaphors. He's getting at the same thing, essentially, that if you try to add Jesus, like this new thing, this new kingdom, this new way of life, that he's, if you try to add it to anything else, it's just going to explode. It's not going to work. And so like, like the metaphors, right? So the, the clothes, right? You've got old clothes. You know, I love my, my old like stretchy pants and my disgusting t-shirts and they're ratty and holy and they've been washed a million times. So they, they have shrunk as much as they're ever going to shrink, right? And, and you take like a new piece of cloth, brand new, and you try to sew it onto a hole. It's not going to work, right? I mean, it might work at first, but as soon as you wash it again, that other one is going to shrink, right? And it's going to make it tear even worse. Same, same thing with the wineskins. So if you make wine in that culture, uh, you know, you'd use these, these wine skins, you'd put new wine in, grape juice essentially. Uh, it would allow for the fermentation process to begin. The wine skins would expand, right, slowly over time as the gases are released and they become bigger and, and more, more brittle, but they'd be fine for old wine because the fermentation process would stop, right? 
But if you add new wine to old wineskins and begin the, the fermentation process over again, they're just going to explode. It's not, it's not going to work. You're going to ruin everything is what Jesus is saying. And again, what he's getting at here is if, if we think for a moment that we can just, like Jesus is just like an add-on, like he's a little bonus that we can sort of add into our lives, like a hobby or some, some sort of like side activity. We're, we're getting it totally wrong. That with Jesus, it's, it's all or nothing. He is everything or he's, or he's nothing. It's just not going to work. And, and sinners know that. I mean, Matthew knows he's not under some delusional fantasy that he can continue being a corrupt tax, tax collector, exploiting the people around him and follow Jesus, like have some like warm security blanket when he gets home from his work at night, right? Just to make him feel good about himself. He knows everything has to change. Everything has to be made new. And so let me ask, this is a hard question for me. Let me ask, what are you, what are you trying to hold on to? Like, like given those, those metaphors, what's sort of the old thing? You know, if you're, if you're, if you're wanting to follow Jesus, that's part of your life. You, you want to follow him. What is it about your old life, your old way of doing things, your old sins that you just can't quite let go of? It's like, well, I'll take Jesus if I can still have this, right? It's just not going to work. Because here, here's what we often do. We think, of, we think of adding Jesus to our life, like downloading a new app onto our phone, Right? Maybe it's an app like you're really excited about it. Like you know you're going to use it at least, some, at least Sundays, right? Uh, at least when things like fall apart and you need something really quick. Then, then you're, of course you're going to get it out. But Jesus doesn't want to be an app. Jesus wants to be a whole new operating system, right? That like takes the entire phone and reworks everything. So even the apps look differently and act differently. That everything changes. That you see the world. That we understand who we are and who he is and what he's doing in our world and what our sin is and what our good works are. All of it looks differently. Jesus doesn't want to be part of anything. He won't be an add-on. He won't. He wants to be everything. So what is it I'm still holding on to? Only sinners become followers. It's because they know everything has to change. Everything. Finally. I love, I love this in the text here. Sinners become followers because they know how to celebrate. I think that draws, I think Jesus just loves that. They know how to party. And, and on, of course they do, right? They, they've found the cure. They know that they're diseased and that they found something that gives them hope or, or, or the cure has, has found them and all of a sudden there's, there's hope again. And Jesus, I mean, right, he loves a good party and so should his followers. I mean, look, look at again the, the question here. Kind of back, back up verse, verse 14. You know, the this other disciples asked, you know, why, why don't your disciples fast? Why aren't, they, why aren't they more serious? In verse 15, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, but then they will fast. Essentially the contact, but today, but now, now we celebrate. Of course there's tension here. 
Because for you and I, we live kind of in this in-between place, right? I mean, Jesus there, he's, he's clearly, he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's alluding to the fact that he's going to die. He's going to be taken away from his disciples. And that will be a time of great grief for them. But you, we, we live on the other side of this, right? And, and so we know that he, we believe that he rose again from the dead. And so for us, Jesus, the resurrected bridegroom, he's neither fully with us nor fully away from us. Right? There's this there's tension. So there is a place, and Jesus is alluding that there is a time for fasting, for waiting, for longing, as we feel the agony of living in our world, groaning to be made whole. And yet at the same time, we live in the glorious light of Easter Sunday. And we know that victory is assured that the bridegroom will return. We we grieve. Of course we grieve. We grieve because we wait. But we rejoice because we will not wait forever. So one more question. Is serious joy a part of your life? Both words there are really important. We're not talking about flippant joy, right? I mean, it's certainly a kind of celebration that simply is meant to distract us, kind of an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of, kind of mentality. And, and many of us do. I know that it's so easy, right, to run to those things, to food and drink and sex or pleasure or entertainment or whatever it is, whatever to distract us from our misery, from the pain that we experience, and we go there so quickly. That's, that's not the kind of celebration that Jesus is pointing to. And yet, on the other hand, so many Christians just seem so miserable. As if it's like a bonus. Like God's going to love them more if they're unhappy or something. Like, like anger or grumpiness or, or just being awful. It's like a spiritual discipline or something. And so people who just complain about everything, right? The world this and everything is so awful and blah, blah. You know, we, we, we do this. We get into these modes and we call it spirituality. We think that it actually makes us a better person. Some of us do. God forbid we laugh or smile or celebrate. Your Savior was known as the King of Parties. I mean, it's not incidental that Jesus' very first miracle is turning water into wine at a party that ran out. I mean, put that together, right? It's because they already drank all the wine that was already there, right? And Jesus makes more I mean, who, who is this guy? Who is the Savior, this King? I mean, sure, we, we never celebrate purely for celebration's sake, as, as if it's an end to itself, simply to distract us from our pain. That's not going to help. I mean, you and I, we, we've all tried it, right? It doesn't help. It doesn't help to celebrate as, as if this is as good as it gets. But instead, we turn every opportunity into a celebration that the best is yet to come to turn every moment of laughter, every child's smile, every, every glass of wine or perfect steak, every, every wonderful night with like friends and family, where you just you talk too long and laugh too loud, right? Every vacation or, or milestone or a holiday, every moment of delight, an opportunity for thanksgiving, an opportunity for expectation, Only sinners become followers.
That's it. They know how sick they are. They know that absolutely everything, everything has to change. And they know how to celebrate with serious joy. Does that describe you? For Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as we um, just a few moments ago sang about our need for you, God, remind us how desperate we are. God, I pray that you would convict us of our self-righteousness for how quickly we think that we're just okay, that our lives are fine, we'll get by. And we forget about the many ways we've ignored you, hurt the people we love, or just frankly ignored the good that we know we should be doing. Convict us, Lord Jesus, but also show us that if you, can, if you have a place in your story for Matthew, this filthy traitor, that you have a story for us. Invite us in, Lord Jesus, and help us encounter you, we pray. Amen.